I've encouraged our church family, for those who haven't been here recently, to spend the first couple of months of 2022 in the throne room of heaven, doing so by soaking your souls in 26 verses that are contained in John 17. It's a prayer of Jesus to His Father the evening before He was crucified, and today I invite you there together. And as you come to John 17, to do it prayerfully, to step, as it were, from earth to heaven, even as you flip the pages of your Bible, from the secular to the sacred, to come away into the holy of holies, and to look upon unimaginable glory, to listen with mouths closed, ears open, souls sensitive to God's communion with God, as the Son, our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, assaults the ear of His Father, and He opens His prayer by praying for Himself and particularly for His return to glory. As we said last Lord's Day in our overview of John 17, this most, most remarkable chapter, there's not another like it anywhere in the Bible from cover to cover. We intend to gaze upon the heart of Christ in six parts, beginning today. Today, we'll devote our attention to four points from the first five verses. If you're not there already, please join me in John 17, beginning in verse 1. Hear the Lord Jesus speak to His Father. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Join me in prayer once again. Father, not to stress more importance on ourselves than we ought, I do have to ask in wonder, in curiosity, have you covered Memphis and the greater Mid-South with a cloud so that we'd be protected as we try to stare into the blazing sun of your glory. Like you descended on Sinai in a cloud as a protective covering of Moses when he encountered your glory lest he die. Lord, is today such a covering because we are coming to a mountain even more glorious. We are coming to an encounter even more splendid. 
Not with a man and his God, but with God and God. Show us what is in these verses. Open hearts to believe. And I pray that you would stagger us with the profundity of your majesty that you are God, there is no other. Your son said you are the only true God. And that you may be known in the one whom you have sent. Show us Christ. Peel the scales from our eyes. We are sorry that we are so full of the chaff of this world. We have Virtually no spiritual appetite. We confess that, Lord. We ask that by the miracle of the Holy Spirit, you would give us just a few moments to turn our eyes away from the horizontal things and to join Jesus in looking into the throne room of heaven to eternal things. You would awaken our appetite, you would enlarge our appetite, and that we would glut ourselves on you, O God. Come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned we'll take four points to look at the first five verses of this prayer. It is Jesus' prayer for His own glorification. The first point is verse 1, the second point is verses 2 and 3, the third point is verse 4, and the fourth and final point is verse 5. The first point is the hour of the Son's glory. All of creation, since God said, let there be light, had been funneling to this moment. We know from the testimony of Scripture that since Genesis 3, when there were a grand total of two human beings on the planet, that all of creation, according to Romans 8, had been groaning for this hour. Since sin entered the world, the long-awaited promises of God for millennia were channeling down into this harrowing, harrowing moment of the last hours of Jesus of Nazareth. Everything exists for God. All of creation exists for Jesus. Yes, He came into the world for you, but you came into the world for Him, according to Colossians 1. All things are for Him. And everything about everything like an hourglass has channeled to this moment and flows from it. When Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, our first point, the hour of the Son's glory. When Jesus says the hour, H-O-U-R, it is, as J.C. Ryle said, the hour appointed in God's eternal counsels for the sacrifice of the death of Christ. Long before there was a world, When nothing but God existed. Your brain and mind cannot conceive of this, but it doesn't make it true. There was nothing, nothing, nothing besides God. 
There was one God. He is from forever. He is the I am. He is triune. There are not three gods. There is one God. The one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is eternal. And in his eternal counsels, his fellowship with himself, his glad-hearted delightedness in who he is, for all eternity, he has eternal counsel. And in and of himself, in his own eternal counsel, he purposed to accomplish atonement for creatures that he would make who he knew good and well would rebel against him. Before he created a world, he wrote a book. I'm not talking about the Bible, I'm talking about another book. The title of the book we're told in the book of Revelation is The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain from the Foundation of the World. That's the title of the book God wrote. And he wrote it before there was a world. He decided by himself to give his son a bride. And he made that decision before he made the universe. And the night before he dies on the cross, Jesus says, the hour has come. Everything exists for the son. And the son knew that he would accomplish the eternal plan of God which had been purposed in the councils of eternity by God Himself. It's the hour of all hours. And it's the hour that the Son would be glorified. That's what verse 1 says. When we say it's the hour of all hours, it's what I've just been trying to refer to for the previous moments. Jesus knew He was the second Adam. Jesus knew He was the true man. He was the obedient son. He's the faithful Israel. Unlike the first Adam, he knows that he had successfully obeyed impeccably with pristine perfection, achieving perfect righteousness. He had built up a life of righteousness. There was not one half of one sin in the Lord Jesus, and he knew on this night that he was that woman's seed which was prophesied in Genesis 3, who would crush the serpent's head and that it would happen in the next 24 hours. Jesus understood that this was the hour of all hours. He would prove to be the ark into which men may run to be saved from the tsunami of God's coming wrath. He knew that when he mounted the cross, he would prove to be Genesis 12's promised seed in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That he would be the innocent victim foreshadowed in Genesis 22 who being willingly bound upon the altar would be slain for the sins of others. He knew in fulfillment of what God had accomplished in preserving a remnant alive in Genesis 50 through the life and labors of Joseph, the son of Jacob, that Jesus would ascend to the throne of God to preserve many people alive. He understood this hour. He knew 
right here on the eve of the Passover, that's the night it is, when the bleeding of the sheep is echoing from the temple of Jerusalem, when countless hundreds and thousands of people have traveled from the known world to make it to this city on this night, because Leviticus 16 procedures needed to be carried out the next day. Unblemished lambs, spotless lambs, would be sacrificed on the Passover day. Jesus knew that the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, the Passover, would be finally and forever fulfilled in His own self-sacrifice. He knew that the hour had come. It's the hour of all hours. And I want you to hear something today because I believe you live in the same world I live in when almost nobody, almost nobody tells you it was not mainly for you. Not mainly for you. The cross is not mainly for you. I'm not minimizing how much it is for you, but you and I are secondary beneficiaries of what God has done in His Son for His own glory through the cross of Christ. That's what Jesus says. The hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify the cross of Jesus is first and foremost, principally, primarily for God and His glory. The hour of hours, our first point, culminates in that radical prayer, which is radically true at the end of verse 1. Father, glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Every time Jesus speaks of the cross, in John's Gospel, he can't get God's glory out of his mouth. When he first speaks of the cross in John chapter 12, why did he wait so long? Because that's the first time the nations come to him. And as I said last week, he's not a parochial deity, he's not a tribal savior. He came to save by his blood from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And in John 12, when the Greeks come to him for the first time, Jesus immediately says, John 12, 28, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your name. That's his first thought when he thinks about the cross. The cross is first and foremost about God and his glory. It is about God in that it is the paramount display of his character. There is nothing that so manifests the full panorama of God's perfections than the cross of Jesus. It is first about God, and it is about His glory. It is about God in that it shows the panorama of His perfections in a way nothing else possibly could. It is about His glory in that it restores what would have been injured in His honor had God become your friend apart from the death of Jesus. I believe Jesus' prayer at the end of verse 1 could be paraphrased faithfully. Something like this. Father, I'm soberly aware 
of the eternal covenant that we made in the portals of infinity to rescue a remnant of humanity through my blood sacrifice. And that that covenant is so that there would be a redeemed cluster who forever into the portals of eternity future praise you for the glory of your grace. Therefore, I am now asking you on the eve of this sacred hour, my sacrificial death, that you sustain me in this climactic act of my obedience unto you so that ultimately you receive the glory you deserve in doing what Hebrews says, bringing many sons to glory. This is the hour of all hours. It's the moment where the son proved obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for that reason, the father highly exalted him, giving him the name above every name, at which name every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, and all of that will be to the glory of God the Father. That's the way Jesus prays in verse 1. It's the hour of all hours. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. When we begin to see that John 17 is not in a vacuum, it's not a randomly placed chapter, that it follows a torrent, it follows a flash flood which gates opened in the first verse of the first chapter that this is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos, who has been with God as God, who in chapter 1 came enfleshed and tabernacled among us as God's glory house. We see throughout the pages of John him meeting a woman of Samaria and revealing to her her sins and his all-satisfying, saving sufficiency, quenching her soul's thirst with the water of his life-giving self. In John 5, raising a 38-year lame man beside the pool of Bethesda and bringing him to full physical healing. In John 6, walking on the water. In John 9, putting spittle in a man's eyes to heal him so that everybody would know he was sent from heaven. In John 11, raising Lazarus from the dead. In John 12, welcoming the nations. In John 13, declaring all the new covenant promises would be yes in his own blood in John 14 through 16 in the sending of the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. He's praying in verse 1, glorify me that I may glorify you. This reciprocal glory between the Son and the Father. I want to ask you a question before I go to point two. Have you gotten a foretaste of this glory for yourself? Jesus wanted to be glorified, but he wanted to be glorified for a reason. So that the Father may be glorified, and there's no doubt that verse 2 is connected to our second point where I'm headed now. It's connected to inviting you into the everlasting enjoyment of God's glory, which Jesus has forever enjoyed. 
Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This means, as every commentary I consulted emphasized, Jesus is praying to be sustained to carry out the completion of the redeeming work that He had been assigned from eternity past through His death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Glorify me that way, that I may glorify you. The that I may glorify you includes our second point, the reach of the Son's authority. So first, it is the hour of the Son's glory. And second, the reach of the Son's authority. This is verses 2 and 3. Look at it. Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The, the, the way He's bringing glory to the Father in being sustained, glorified, through the cross, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the way He's bringing glory to the Father is by bringing you to enjoy the Father's glory with Him. That's the reach of His authority in verses 2 and 3. There's a connection between verse 1 and verse 2. The glory that Jesus longs to bring to the Father is the particular glory that God derives in redeeming sinners through Christ's death and resurrection and giving them eternal life. So in verse 2, there's an unequivocal, unmistakable declaration. You either have to agree and embrace, or you have to totally deny and there's no middle ground. Jesus declares in prayer to His Father, all authority is His own over all flesh in the whole world. You gave Him authority over all flesh. That's the first consideration under our second point, the reach of the Son's authority. How far reaching? The scope is unmistakable. By the Father's degree, decree, Jesus of Nazareth is Lord over all flesh, all mankind. No one ever escapes his sovereign rule. The heart of every king is in the hand of Christ. He turns nations and individuals wherever he wishes. Though few acknowledge his reign, and many think ignoring him will make him go away, one day, unambiguously, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. But the point of Jesus' affirmation to the Father in declaring, you've given me authority over all flesh, is to drive home the certainty of the salvation for all whom the Father has given Him out of humanity. He says later in this prayer, that the disciples themselves, the eleven faithful, were given Him to the Son from the Father out of the world. That's what verse 2 is saying, which is the second consideration under our second point, the reach of the Son's authority, is this. Yes, first, He has been given authority over all flesh. And yes, second, that's so that He may give eternal life to all who are given unto Him by the Father. This means that out of humanity, God has providentially given a subset 
of humanity to his son so that Jesus may make trophies of God's eternal grace out of them. And some would say, like a piece of clay contending against the potter, why have you done it this way? To which the scripture will respond, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You see, the question rises naturally from people who have a defective view of God and a defective view of sin. How can you give Jesus authority over all people and then give to Jesus only a few of those people so that he may give to them eternal life? How is that fair? It's not fair. You don't want fair. Fair is all people perish. Everybody suffer God's eternal judgment, as our catechism said. All humanity deserves to perish, and God would be perfectly just in damning the entire fallen human race. But He's jealous to magnify the full panorama of His perfections in making some the objects of His eternal love. Nothing should more humble the pride of man than to know yourself to have been made a child of God owing to zero merit of your own. Nothing should so debase a man. We could put the Gospel of John, I think, faithfully into two small statements. I've alluded to it earlier. Jesus was given for you. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son because Jesus was given for you, because you had from eternity been given to Him. That's the reason He sent His Son. He had already given His Son a bride. Therefore, He sent Jesus into the world. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Here's the remnant. So that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And here, among many other places, just in John's Gospel, not to mention the totality of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, we find who's going to believe? Those whom the Father has given to the Son. You had from eternity been given to Jesus. And He came to rescue all of those that the Father had by His own prerogative given to Him. So what is the eternal life He's going to give those precious trophies of His grace? What is it? What is eternal life? It is verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. An experiential knowledge of God. If you have eternal life, this much is for sure true about you. You know God. And you know His Son. Something impossible to persuade unbelievers about is also the same thing that's impossible to get any true believer to deny. That is, all Christians know God. The new covenant promise from God through Ezekiel to the Old Testament, through Jeremiah uh, to, to, to Old Testament Israel is, they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. 
He will put his spirit within us. He will take out our heart of stone. He will give us a heart of flesh. He'll forgive our sins. We don't know him exhaustively, but all Christians know him truly. Into eternity, we will have ever-increasing knowledge of God. We know him. I know it sounds like sci-fi to unbelievers, but I want you all to hear that every true Christian listens to God, communes with Him, walks with Him, lives in a love relationship with the only true God. He's our preeminent treasure. He's our eternal reward. He makes Himself known to us through His Son by His Spirit according to His Word. He regularly, sweetly, and personally reveals Himself to us by the Spirit through His Word. He's given us the grand privilege of prayer when the Lord Jesus died on the cross. The veil of the temple was written to from top to bottom signifying our direct access into the Holy of Holies. And He ministers to us in that sweet communion of prayer. In times of individual and congregational meditation together on His Word like right now and through His people, He sustains us in trials. He sweetens our sorrows. He nestles up beside us in ways we couldn't describe if we wanted to. We don't have vocabulary in any language to put into an exhaustive articulation what His sweet presence is like in our sorrows. He comes alongside us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and assures us of the blood-bought stability of all of His promises that Jesus has won for us. God the Holy Spirit truly draws from the risen victory of God the Son to assure our hearts that we are indeed children of God. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Though we know Him, not exhaustively, but truly, though we walk with Him, really, we fail Him regularly. He reminds us, even in our failures, of the overtures of His love, that we're adopted into His forever family, that we're incapable of outrunning the long arm of His agape love, which was demonstrated for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To know God truly requires that you know Him as He is. Part of the reason we sang a Trinitarian chorus a moment ago, glory be to God the Father, glory be to God the Son, glory be to God the Holy Spirit, to God the three in one. Part of the reason we sang that is because that's the only true God. So we can know that if someone does not know Him thus, they do not know Him at all. If you deny His Trinity in unity and Unity and Trinity, or as the Athanasian Creed put it, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. If you have another conception of God, we can at least say to you, this much is true. You don't know God. Because there's only one true God. Eternal life is, as Paul prayed for the Colossians, an ever-deepening knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10, that you may increase in the knowledge of God. That's how he prayed for Christian people. And for the Ephesians, the same Apostle Paul prayed that you would know the love of Christ, which is beyond knowing. That you just keep growing in knowing 
the unknowable love of Jesus, we know Him. This is eternal life. What's the extent of the Son's obedience? So, we've seen the reach of His authority. He gives eternal life to all whom the Father's given Him, and eternal life is bringing you into the same relationship with the Father that He has. What's the extent of His obedience? That's our third point, verse 4. What a sentence. What a declaration. What a statement. Verse 4 reads, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. No other human could pray a sentence like that. This speaks as much to the Son's divinity as any verse in the Bible. I have fully, exhaustively glorified you. I have accomplished everything you've given me to do. Jesus speaks like this in multiple places. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My sustenance is to do all of God's will. He and he alone perfectly walked the life of active obedience, righteousness before the Father. I have accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, isn't this something amazing? I know our mental capacities and maybe our soul's capacities are reaching the edges already. But think about this. On the evening before he's crucified, he's speaking past tense. It's an aorist. It's done with ongoing effect. I have accomplished. He hasn't died yet. How can he pray that? Because it's as good as done. Because the Lord Jesus is the most Bible-saturated person who's ever walked the planet, and he knew that the entire Scripture was about him and about his gospel labors. Even when he's on the cross, he quotes from a passage of the Bible that was written a thousand years before he was born, Psalm 22, which says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Not they will pierce that a thousand years before it happened. They did it. And when he was on the cross, he said, done. And the night before he's crucified, he speaks as if it's a finished reality. I have accomplished the work you've given me to do. Jesus knew that verse 1 and 2 would be answered. He would be glorified. That is, he would be sustained by the Father through the agonies of the cross, through the deep mysteries of the tomb where his corpse lie dead. He knew that on Sunday morning early, he would rise triumphantly from the grave, that he would be exalted to the Father's right hand, given the name above every name. He accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. He came and purchased the people that the Father had given him so that he may give to them eternal life. He has brought that glory to the Father. Now, I want you to see in the accomplishment of his death, I want you to see the cross. Uh, I used my imagination in my opening prayer to talk about the covering the, over the Mid-South. Maybe this is a protective layer of cloud to keep us from dying if God shows us just a glimpse of his glory. Let me use your imagination again to think about the cross, not just as a stick and a cross beam, but as the handle of a sword. You know how a sword oftentimes has the part you hold and then the shield protective layer and then the dagger? Picture the cross like that. This way. And the Father impaling the cross into this sin-torn world and the tip of the spear going down so far that it reaches hell itself 
Because when Jesus says, I have accomplished the work you've given me to do, I have glorified you on the earth, Jesus knew what he was talking about. He knew that the enemy had tried time and time again, incessantly, countless times, assaulting him from the time he arrived on the planet until the time he ascended, uh, rose, rose victoriously from the grave. He knew that Satan was looking for just one shred, one shred of guilt in him because he knew it would take a lever and put it under the cross and with leverage it would pull up all the mighty power of Christ's redeeming work. If Jesus had committed one half of one sin, he would have been an inadequate redeemer. So when Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, he's declaring what he had already said earlier, the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took his life of righteous obedience and he put a dagger into Satan and all of his evil purposes and secured the salvation of God's people forever. So that takes us to where Jesus closes his portion of the prayer for himself. It's the fourth and final point. It's coming from verse 5. This is the desire of the son's heart. So thus far, we've seen in verse 1, the hour of the son's glory. Verses 2 and 3, the reach of the son's authority. Verse 4, the extent of the son's obedience. And finally, Verse 5, the desire of the son's heart. What does he want? You can read the verse. He wants glory. He wants to be glorified with the Father, with the glory that he shared with the Father before the world was. Now I want you to picture something else in your mind's eye. Before Jesus came to the world, I've tried the labor that he shared eternal glory with the Father with the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three, perfect unity. We should think and meditate often on Christ's pre-existent glory. But I want you to not just use your imagination, use biblical foundation to imagine eternity future. What will be different in the coming eternity about God's own shared glory with God. Glorify me with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. There will be a substantial, I would say tangible difference. That is, he's bringing a body. In eternity past, the Lord Jesus had no body. He wasn't incarnate. He wasn't human. When by the Holy Spirit who was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was from that point and forever into eternity embodied. And when he took his body to the cross, God raised him bodily from the grave. The apostles saw him ascend bodily into heaven. We're told he's going to return bodily in his glory to judge all men. And we're going to see him just like Thomas after the resurrection. We'll be able to put our own hand into his glorified side. We'll be able to feel the prints in his hands. The emblems of our redemption will remain on the body of our Savior in his glorified state forever. The difference in his coming glory at this moment from his prior glory that he's praying about is that he's going to take you with him. He's bringing humanity with him. Glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He knew where he was going after the cross, and for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. But dear friends, the difference in his post-incarnation glory versus his 
pre-incarnation glory is that it is a Hebrews 10 forever embodied glory. And so now we know that though we're just kind of clipping along through the rat race of this life, I hope we know and I hope we inescapably know here and now while we're sitting in this little gymnasium and almost nobody on the planet knows we're here, there's a man at God's right hand fully delighting in the glory of God. And as accepted and as approved as he is in God's presence, so also are all those who have hidden themselves in him by faith. And one day, when you get to glory, he will be representing before the Father in his glorified body that was given for your redemption, he will be representing how welcome you are in God's presence. But not only that, how invited you are to enjoy with him the glory which he has enjoyed for all eternity. That's why he came. I agonized over whether or not to do application because I believe the application is look, see, believe. But I'm going to give you this one line from dear brother R.C. Sproul because we just read the Father's given to the Son a people and He's going to give them eternal life. So Sproul says, here's the bottom line question. Do you or do you not trust in Christ alone for salvation, for the just punishment that is due to you for your sins? Do you or do you not trust in Christ alone for salvation, for the just punishment that is due to you for your sins? If you're trusting Him like that, You'll be painfully aware of how much you fail, sin, disobey. The Holy Spirit is good at His job to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment that we'd bring our life back to Him in contrition and honest prayer, for, ask for grace for obedience. But if you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, for the just punishment that is due to you for your sins, if you're proving yourself to be one of those who have been given by the Father to the Son for whom Jesus died, the day after he prayed this prayer, then you'll long for the shape of your life and the posture of your heart to be like verse 4. Make me like Jesus like that. I want to glorify you on the earth. I want to do the work you've given me to do. I'm sorry for filling myself up on this chaff, having so little appetite for you. Lord, I want to know you. I mean know you. I want to know your son. I want to live in your presence, and when I get to heaven, I don't want to be surprised totally by how glorious you are, because I want to live in the atmosphere of your glory now. I want to soak up as much glory as a saved sinner can on this side of eternity, so that when I arrive in heaven, I'll say, oh yeah, that's my Savior. Let's pray together.